Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. I hope that you're having a good week so far. It was lovely to hear your reaction to last week's episode with Bill Bailey. I'm really pleased that you enjoyed it. Bill and I talked a lot about the Bath area of England in uh, Wiltshire. And he goes back there an awful lot. Coincidentally, then, I spent the weekend there last weekend. Such a magical place in the build-up to Christmas. If you're able to get there, they've got some fantastic Christmas lights and markets. And I think because the architecture is so consistently perfectly preserved in Bath, it feels like you're walking around a film set. So absolutely loved it we stayed at Lucknam Park Hotel which is a country house hotel just outside of Bath about 20 minutes drive in Lucknam Park might ring a bell as Claire Balding picked it as her favorite dog friendly place to stay on her episode of the Travel Diaries so it seemed only fitting that we should bring our Cavapoo Indy with us and she was in her element because the house is set on 500 acres of beautiful parkland so she just ran ran wild for hours And the house itself is just stunning. It's a Palladian mansion dating back to the 1720s. And you can stay in the house. We stayed in one of the cottages in the grounds, which is a great option for a family because it has its own stocked kitchen and a big living room with a wood-burning fire. Very, very cozy, very Christmassy. And totally set up for everything you need with a dog too. You know, beds, bowls are all there for you when you get there. So when we went out with Indy or exploring Bath, we had a really relaxing time in the spa there. The restaurant at Luckland Park um, is Michelin star. Restaurant Howell Jones. What an amazing place. Classic modern British cuisine in a timelessly elegant setting. Uh, What I imagine used to be the ballroom in the house. And it was amazing. If you're in the Wiltshire area and you fancy a special treat meal you will not regret it. So on to today's guest, speaking of delicious food, I am joined by a legend of the culinary world, the chef, restaurateur and broadcaster, Michelle Rue. The story goes that Michelle was practically born in a kitchen when his mother went into labour during service at his father's restaurant. He's the son of Albert Roux and the nephew of Michelle Roux, brothers who revolutionised the restaurant business in the UK when they opened Le Gavroche in 1967, famously becoming the first establishment in this country to gain one, two and then three Michelin stars. When his father retired in 1993, Michelle took over this world-famous restaurant, quickly becoming a household name on TV shows like MasterChef The Professionals, Remarkable Places to Eat, and he now has another new TV show set in Provence, which he'll tell us all about. We recorded this on Zoom a little while ago, and the Zoom robot voice does pop up occasionally on this one. I'm sorry about that, but I hope that you really enjoy the episode, especially as chefs tend to be so well-traveled, and Michelle is no exception. His travel diaries take us on a delectable journey from Lyon to Hong Kong, the Seychelles to Las Vegas. So let's get started. (laughs) 
Michelle Rue, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. What an honour it is to be joined by you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great, uh, great to be with you and to discuss and to have a bit of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries, uncovering all kinds of amazing and wonderful places along the way. Let's start with chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? I remember traveling with dad and mum to Scotland um, and traveling in uh, an old, I think they were called Morris Miners, the cars that had wooden panelling on the inside and outside. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine driving from Kent all the way up to the northern sort of northern Isles. I mean, uh, right up to, uh, you know, Inverness and further. It was quite a trek and quite an adventure. Uh, And I do remember that. And I remember the cold, um, sort of brisk air, even in the summer months of, of, you know, Scotland. Mm, and where in Scotland was it that you were going and like what was the kind of landscape like that you arrived into because oh. you grew up in Kent down south right so was it a big contrast when you le- when you got there when yeah. you arrived totally totally different I mean it was like a different country let alone yeah different planet let alone a different country um you know yeah this, this sort of landscape of of heather and uh, and mountains with clouds sort of covering halfway up the mountain and then you see the peak of the mountain above the, it's as a child it was it was quite scary at times and inspiring yeah awesome absolutely awesome now i don't remember much about the food because i was really very very small mm-hmm. um, and i'm guessing my mum and dad brought a lot of food with them but uh, no scotland was something special and um, and dad fell in love with scotland and he always loved to travel to Scotland at any chance he had. Really, really. And have you continued going there, you know, as an adult? Absolutely. Now I've got some, uh, I look after a couple of hotels and restaurants up there and so I'm, I'm up there reasonably often. Uh, and I still, you know, I'm still in awe when when we land uh, in Scotland and, and you, you just look at this beautiful scenery and uh, and this wonderful, crisp, clean air. Oh, the air. Oh, yeah. And if you catch Scotland on a, on a blue sky day, it, there's no other place on earth like it. No. Totally. I was actually there earlier this year when it was during a, a little heat wave there. Mm. And um, we did a road trip uh, around the west coast of Scotland. And I never see people often say that it is a bit like New Zealand. Having never been to New Zealand, I thought, wow, having seen this, it made me want to go go, go there because it's just the most dramatic, majestic mm. scenery. So, um, yeah, I, I share share your passion there for um, for Scotland. And you said that you don't have that many food memories of, of Scotland, but growing up, obviously, you were surrounded, enveloped by food and the food world. What are your kind of early food memories? Um, and I, I would say one of my very, very first food memories would be vanilla ice cream. As a six, I think I was probably six, maybe seven-year-old, uh, I remember dad making vanilla ice cream and he didn't have any of these modern gadgets for making ice cream. It was just a pail of wood, uh, oh, sorry, a wooden pail uh, with crushed ice and added salt to make the temperature go down even further. And then a wooden, uh, a um, iron cylinder 
with wooden paddles inside and a crankshaft with uh, wheels and a handle. Wow. Uh, so we poured the mixture, the ice cream mixture, the uh, inside, and then you'd have to churn it by hand manually to um, make the ice cream, to set the ice cream. So I remember as a child churning this uh, ice cream. And for me, as a child, it was my ice cream I'd made it. And the reward was that lovely first scoop of vanilla ice cream. So no, that's that's mm. probably my very, very first food memory. Putting that effort into it as well. Mm. So the, the effort means a greater reward at the end of it. That's exactly right. I've, I've read that you can actually remote recall the moment that you decided you wanted to be a chef. Yeah, my childhood was spent under the table uh, in a professional kitchen, given yeah. you know, bits of puff pastry to play with instead of plasticine and uh, you know, pots and pans to make some noise with. It's, um, yeah, so, but, but I actually made the decision at school leaving age at 16. Um, I got all my O-levels and, uh, and said, look, to, to dad, I don't want to go to university. I don't want to carry on going to school. I want to earn a living and I want to learn a craft and uh, professions. I want to be a chef. And uh, yeah, he jumped for joy. And uh, yeah, and the rest was history, as they say. Yeah. What well, do you think it was? A, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but was it a predetermined thing? I mean, did you did you feel like there was any other alternative? It, it probably was predetermined in a way, because, you know, that's uh, like I alluded to earlier, I was born in the kitchen, spent all my childhood in, in a kitchen. So that it was only you know a natural progression, I suppose, for me to then take that on to my working working life. But I don't see mm. it as work. It's not a work. It's not work. Well, that's the best kind of work, right? Mm. Yeah, when it, when it doesn't seem like work. So let's move on to chapter two. And that is the first place that you fell in love with. Gosh, first place that I fell in love with. That's a difficult question to, uh, to answer because uh, I was born in this country, uh, in Kent, but I was raised as a French child. So my first language, surprisingly enough, was French, even though I was born here, mm. because my parents really? had only just, yeah, my parents had only just arrived here uh, and so spoke to me in French. Um, in fact, my primary school, when I went to, to primary school, I, I struggled because I didn't know any English. First place that I fell in love with? I suppose it's got to be that little village in Kent and the, the wonderful school, the primary school, my first primary school, my first uh, head teacher, Etty. Even now I remember her name. It, it was just a wonderful, wonderful time um, and a wonderful life. And the estate where, where dad was working, Fairlawn Estate, and as a child growing up there. And then going with, with my grandmother, who used to come over uh, from France, and um, she used to bring little food parcels, so stinky cheese and salamis and pâtés and things. And then, but going with uh, with my grandmother and wandering into the woods of the estate and gathering wild strawberries, mushrooms, chestnuts in the season, and and things like that. So, you know, all of that and gathering gathering snails as well, gathering snails and eating them. Um, yeah, th th things like that. So childhood childhood memories of the estate and the area where I was born is definitely a love affair. So tell me a bit about this estate and, and where where exactly was it in Kent? So um, it, just in Shibbon, this tiny village where I was born, and Dad was the um, chef there of this estate, Fairlawn Estate. So you lived on the estate? We, we, we lived just off the estate in a tiny little house. Um, yeah. And that was part of the, part of the job. Uh, so, so Dad was the chef, the only chef there. Um, and rather like a Downton Abbey or you know, upstairs, downstairs, he was the chef of the family, private chef. So the Fairlawn 
the state was absolutely magnificent. Uh, there were stables there where the Queen Mother had her horses. There right. was a beautiful, beautiful um, chalk stream uh, where trout were. There were fresh watercress. Uh, the woodland was extraordinary. It, and, and yeah, it's just the most mind-blowingly beautiful state. So very fortunate mm. as a child to be brought up in, in, you know, in that area. The perfect childhood. How lovely. I mean, not many people can reflect on their childhood and really view it as perfect. Mm. I mean, that is just, that's just such a lovely memory to have. Yeah, and, and it's, it's one that will stay in my I will cherish forever. Oh, that's so nice. So fast forwarding then, you, you finished school at 16. You've told dad, right, I want to be a chef. You trained and worked in restaurants in Paris and Lyon and Hong Kong, as well as London. And I was just really interested in the contrast between training in what I imagine was a very classical French environment and then going to the Far East and living in Hong Kong. So tell me a bit about those experiences. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, Paris as an apprenticeship. I mean, uh, Paris was wonderful and really enjoyed that. Two years working as an apprentice pastry chef, especially as a 16-year-old, I mean, you know, Paris was such fun. We're away from my parents and learning a craft. Uh, so that, that was that was really, really cool. Uh, and Paris is such an exciting city. It's a beautiful city. But then I really enjoyed immediately after that working in Lyon as well. And I think I still think Lyon for me is, is the destination city in France, especially for foodies. It's, it's got so much on offer. Beautiful place. Mm. And then immediately after that, Hong Kong. So going from real classic French training and, and eating and being hit, all the senses being hit, going to Hong Kong was just like, wow, just off the scale. Yeah. And yeah, being immersed in a different culture as well and uh, different food. And it was, yeah, mind, mind boggling. I lived in Aberdeen, uh, the harbour, which was uh, in itself just crazy i mean you know the, the fish market there was just like <laughs> unbelievable I, I returned actually not long ago a few years ago and uh, for a trip mm -hmm. down memory lane and the, the fish market is still there and still as still as exciting as it as it was as i remember it um and the food the the, the smells the the passion that the chinese and hong kong people have for food as well was was very similar to to the French passion. So in that respect, it was it was parallel, but mm. different flavors, different textures, different cooking methods as well um, was, was an absolute revelation uh, as a young chef. And when you went back recently for your trip down memory lane, you know, for people who haven't been to Hong Kong, what did you experience that you would want to tell somebody who was going there for the first time you must do? Mm, well, Ab Aberdeen, Definitely, where I used to live is, is great fun. There are two markets. There's the professional fish market, which normally you're not allowed in, but you can sneak in and have a quick look. Again. But wear, wear Wellington boots because it's wet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a proper wet fish market. Uh, uh, and, and if they see any kind of touristy people walking around, they splash water everywhere, so you, you'll get your. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it is extraordinary to see the quality of fish, the seafood there, and that lovely smell of of the sea, not of fish. You just smell that wonderful smell of, of the sea, um, and I think that's one of the things actually that that Hong Kong hits you first is the smell. Every I think every corner, you you, you get hit by a different smell, be it 
grilling fish, or fresh fish, and then or, or grilling uh, tripe sausages, for example, or you know, they, and, and every corner has got something different, or sweets, candies being cooked, and yeah. You know, so it, it's it's such a vibrant city, and I think everything revolves around food, and you can get fresh food cooked to order any time of day or night. Oh, fantastic. Well, chapter three is the place that you learned the most about yourself. Mm. Is that Hong Kong? I think Hong Kong was a stepping stone, most definitely, mm. uh, because it taught me a lot about uh, food, taught me different ways of cooking and different ingredients, lots of different ingredients. So I think it probably, I mean, it was a stepping stone. And um, I think one of the trips that I did also for me was a stepping stone, was a, was a learning curve food-wise. And that was a trip I did with, my wife, we hadn't married as yet, but it was a trip that I took the whole West Coast of um, America. And mm-hmm. we, we took a month off and uh, we, we, you know, I said, come on, let's do that famous road trip from you know, north to south and just stop when we, when we stop and just, you know, stop in a motel or wherever and, and just see, you know, all we know is we, we've got to be back home by this date it was extraordinary because again uh, seeing different styles of food from north to south because the, the food scene from north to south on that pacific highway is completely different totally different totally um, and then the wine region up north as well was was something else and san francisco was such a city well, it is such an amazing city to visit and the food scene there is just like whoa it's it's incredible um, I mean, I remember going to, to Spargo's and, uh, for the first time, and it's still there now, and being blown away by the, the vastness of the place. It's huge. They, they, they cater for like three, 400 people a day, and the quality is up there. And, you know, I, mm. I just couldn't get my head around how they managed to produce that amount of food at such quality and at such speed. And then Chez Panisse as well. And, uh, you know, so all of those wonderful places that are iconic and have stood the test of time. But then also some weird and wonderful places, you know, Santa Barbara. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's just an extraordinary trip that food-wise, I, I will never forget either. And as you get further down south, there's more of the Mexican oh, influence gosh, and the great yeah. tacos. And, oh, my word. It yeah. was the first time I was, I was actually tasting mexican kind of food so that, that flavor avocados as well i mean you know i'm going back ooh, i'm going back about 40 years here and you know 40 years ago avocados here were pretty unheard of you know in the uk mm-hmm. you know people were wondering what they were they were very very posh if if you could get them we'd probably buy them in harrods i suppose but but now they're run of the mill <laughs> absolutely run of the mill yeah, yeah. so when i was eating avocados there i was gobbling it down going wow this is a taste sensation and you know with lime juice over it lime as well was you know, over in the uk was pretty unusual and chilies fresh chilies on everything and these sweet and sour sharp peppery sauces and barbecuing and smoke smoky flavors for sure and so in terms of learning about yourself then was it just a, an awakening in terms of ingredients and inspiration and you know, the senses yes it was and, and um uh, taste wise professionally yes most definitely seeking out new ingredients and new new ways of cooking but it was also very personal because it, it was definitely i i would say the moment that i knew that i was most definitely in love with the the most wonderful woman uh, that uh, we married a few years later and uh, we are still happily married together now so yeah 
That's so lovely. That's so lovely. Oh. Well, Le Gavroche then, one of the world's best known restaurants. The reputation is second to none. And you took over from your father as chef de patron or chef patron, I should say. And um, I mean, obviously, it was before my time, but somewhere that I know at that time had such a strong identity and food philosophy. And so I wondered, as a young chef coming in, taking on that responsibility, how did you strike a balance between maintaining what Le Gavroche was all about and what the customers would expect, but also finding your own food identity and food philosophy? Mm, yeah, not that easy, obviously, because, you know, taking over from my father and filling his, you know, his his boots or, or following in his footsteps, not easy. I mean, it was already an iconic, you know, destination and, and already, a, you know, fantastic reputation. So the last thing I wanted to do was, was radically change everything. And because that would have been just shooting myself in the foot, it would have been a you know crazy, crazy thing to do. But you know, there were things that I that I didn't like that I wanted to you know, modernize or, or or put my influence to. So slowly but surely, over the years, yes, uh, you know, changing it, making it, um, uh, making the, the food offer a little bit lighter, a little bit more uh, my generation, but not radically changing because. It's the food that I was brought up on. It's the food that I love to cook and love to eat. So it has to remain French. Um, but that's not saying that there can't be some other influences there. But I think the worst thing you can do is, is to stagnate, is to not change, because then you know, people will get bored of it. And, and ultimately, your older customers will no longer be coming anyway, because they're not here, or they're retired, or they've moved on. So you have to bring in the next generation of, of clientele. And, uh, but evolve, I think evolve is the most important thing. Important and, of course, but staying true to your roots. So there are still some dishes that have been on the menu since 1967, like the cheese souffle, the souffle suissesse, which is very indulgent. But um, but people come time and time again for that. It's a destination dish. It, oh, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a destination dish. And, you know, we've had third generations now coming, coming for that dish. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. So nice. I mean, in terms of the, the mainstays on the menu, cheese souffle, what are a couple of the others that you that are like the all-time Le Gavroche greats? Mm, well, we always have a, a sweet souffle on uh, as well, at least one sweet souffle. And uh, yeah, the, the one that, that, that seems to be the most popular, which I, I brought in well, probably about 25 years ago, is the uh, Passion fruit souffle with white chocolate ice cream. That's incredibly popular. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Right. Okay. I need to come and, come and visit <laughs> and test that out. What an amazing flavor combination. Mm. <laughs> Yum. And, and then how would you then describe your food philosophy now? Because watching your lovely new series, I absolutely loved that first episode. It really transported me to Provence. It was a really sunny, uplifting program. And what I especially loved about it was, I think of you as, you know, one of the finest fine dining chefs. And I really loved that what you were teaching us to cook was something that was easy and um, something that I felt that I could do myself at home. So it wasn't in any way... Um, you know, overwhelming in that sense. It was comforting and really just showcasing 
French produce at its finest. Uh, so, yeah, tell me a bit about the the show and, and the idea behind that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know French food shouldn't be intimidating. I think a lot of people do regard French food as you know, complex and difficult, and uh, you know they'd rather go Italian because it's simpler. Well, actually, you know, at its very heart, French cuisine is is not complex. Um, unless you go to high-end restaurants or, or, or you know, you, you attempt a complex recipe, of which there are many French complex recipes. But that's not how we eat all the time and every day. And this particular uh, show that I, I've done is exactly that. It's the food that I eat every day at home. So it is. It's seasonal ingredients. Uh, like the tomatoes and the courgettes and all all the other wonderful things that I cook on the show that are local and just cooked with great simplicity. I think it is achievable, and I think it is uplifting, and that's important as well. That you know, you you watch the show and you get you get sort of wrapped into this lovely sort of feeling of warmth, and uh, and and you look at it and you go, my word, I'm going to try and cook this. It, it's achievable. Uh, it's doable and it looks delicious. <laughs> it really does. I, I have a I have a, a bit of an issue with courgettes. Like I've never really got on board with them because at school they were sliced up and watery and like boiled and they re- they really like aff- that really affected me. You know how when you have bad food memories it really can tarnish your experience of an ingredient. Mm. But the way that you explain yeah. that the, the the ones that are too big would be mm. more watery, right? Well, I'll avoid those. You go for the smaller ones, more flavor. It made me think, right, I'm going to try this and I'm going to love courgettes. Yeah. Put, put my past behind me. <laughs> and, and the thing is, there are so many different varieties of courgettes as well. You, you don't often see them here, but in the south of France, there, there are umpteen different varieties and they all have a special taste. And actually courgettes can be quite sweet, especially the smaller ones. The, the bigger ones can be watery and actually quite bitter. So yeah, you stay away from those, keep to the small ones. Today's episode is supported by Naladu Private Island, an exclusive luxury island resort in the Maldives. Oh, who doesn't love the Maldives? It's where I spent my honeymoon and after the couple of years we've all had, a taste of paradise has never seemed so appealing. Naladu Private Island is just a 30-minute speedboat ride from Malé Airport and has just reopened after a complete renovation and reimagining with a new sleek Southeast Asian design. The guest experience at Naladu is totally bespoke. The butler, known as Kawanu, which means storyteller in the Maldivian language, is at your disposal 24 hours a day, both as a guide and to help with things like unpacking, serving early morning coffee and organizing a private island picnic so you can just relax. Whether you're snorkeling with some of the 2,000 species of local sea life or choosing your very own personal menu for the day with the chef, this special resort tailors everything just for you. Visit naladu.com, that's N-A-L-A-D-H-U.com and book that trip of a lifetime. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Let's move on now to chapter four, which is your all-time favorite destination. <gasps> Gosh, that, that, that is tough because, I, you know, like I said, I've, I've been fortunate enough to travel the world and hopefully we will be able to travel a bit more uh, in the in the coming years i i have several but i'm going to opt for the seychelles um, now the seychelles holds particular fond memories because that's where i got married um so my wife and i eloped we ran away uh, we didn't tell anybody we were getting married no family knew and we just got married on this lovely little island of the seychelles in the middle of the uh, Indian Ocean really? and um, it was special mm. just the two of us and uh, uh, I needed a best man and uh, the barman at this hotel where we were staying was particularly generous with his paws and um, I asked him what he was doing the next day in the afternoon uh, during his break asked him if he wanted to be my best man he said yeah of course sure no problem so he turned up and my wife um, had a word with one of the holiday reps there, and she turned up the next day. So we had the local vicar uh, and uh, two witnesses that we just picked up on the day on the beach. And it was an absolutely splendid time. And for our honeymoon, we island hopped onto Bird Island, which is a tiny little speck of sand 20 minutes away from the main island and uh, spent uh, a week there. So. Oh. I've been, I say I, we have been going to the Seychelles very, very often ever since. And uh, it, it is a particular destination that we love, obviously, because we got married there, but also lovely food, delicious food, Creole food. So it's got spice. It's got a little kick to it. It's got a, it's, you know, the Seychelles is a melting pot of um, uh, different cultures as well. Uh, because of its history and different uh, uh, 
uh, people that have occupied uh, the the islands. So yeah, the food there is a little melting pot in itself. And uh, there's one particular place which I don't know if it still exists because uh, I haven't been for a few years now. Called Marie Antoinette, and it's run by Marie Antoinette, or was at the time. I don't know if she's still around because she was an elderly lady last time I went there. And uh, just does Creole food and seashell food, and it's very small menu. There's not a lot to choose from. Basically, eat what she's cooked. But she she was known for her beignet d'aubergine, little aubergine slices that have been deep fried in a batter, flavored with turmeric and cumin. And they were to die for. They were amazing. You would just have those and, and a nice cold beer and <laughs> you'd be happy. <laughs> that sounds amazing. What island of the Seychelles was that on? So that was on the main island. On the, uh, on the main island. Yeah, main island Seychelles, um, just off uh, the capital, Mai. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bird, I mean, Bird Island and then, and then you know, just, just hopping, just going from one island to another. It's just extraordinary. It's such good fun. With the Seychelles, I mean, there's there are various kind of islandy places that you can go on a holiday. Mm. What about the Seychelles uh, makes it so special to you? And aside from the sentimentality of it, mm. in terms of how 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 it feels, how it looks, um, what makes it stand out? I, I think it's the Seychellois. It's the people themselves. They are so warm and friendly, and I, I love to hear them speaking Creole. And trying to pick up the little French nuances of Creole, and when they speak French as well, they got this wonderful accent. It's just like it's like Provençal. It's like being in the Provence because it's like singing. It's it's beautiful, and and the people are beautiful. They're 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 warm. They're friendly, uh, and it's yeah, it, it's it it is just a wonderful place. And it, and it's um, I mean, if you were to compare because it's not far, Mauritius uh, to Seychelles, it's two totally totally different destinations. Um, and, uh, I I believe so, and, and Seychelles is far more relaxed and quite lush, right? As well, like uh, quite you know abundant wildlife, and yeah, really verdant, incredibly verdant, and incredibly lush. I mean, the little tropical forests as well, uh, you know, all over the island, uh, the main island. Mm, lovely, never been on my list. So, where would you pick as your ultimate culinary destination if you were the ultimate foodie? I know. What a question. <laughs> wow. I, I always normally answer that with Hong Kong because I think, you know, it's a place as a foodie to, to visit. Singapore equally is, is, you know, foodie destination. But this one's a little bit left field that I'm going to tell you. And, 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 and you know, people might be a little bit surprised. But Las Vegas really? is actually quite a foodie destination. It is an incredible place. It's off the scale. Uh, I mean, it really is it's the most bizarre place because it's in the middle of the desert and there's just like a landing strip or the, the central strip. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's excess to the extreme. And I, I dip in and out of Vegas. I like going there you know, for three or four nights and it's escapism. You go and see a show at any time of day and the best shows in the world. I mean, they're all there. And all the best restaurants in the world are there, you know, from three Michelin star restaurants all the way down to burger joints or great Japanese uh, street food downtown. It's all there. People might be surprised when I say Vegas and surprised that I actually enjoy Vegas, but in small, small doses. Yeah, that is like not what I'd expect from from a Frenchman, I, I would say, from because it, it's kind of like quite brash and mm. um, la loud, but very loud. You, you like that vibe, <laughs> yeah, but in small doses. And I think you know, you know what? It, even if you don't um, gamble, I'm not a gambler, 
when I go there, I'll maybe have, you know, I'll take out a hundred pounds in chips, max, and that's what I that's what I do. And if it's gone in 10 minutes, it's gone in 10 minutes, and I, and I kick myself for being so foolish. Uh, but you can go to Vegas and not gamble. But you can, but you, but you can enjoy the madness because it is madness. It's absolutely bonkers. Um, but so is Macau. Uh, you know, and, and Macau is another place as well, which I haven't been for many years, but I want to, to revisit. Amazing food. All the top chefs have got restaurants there. Um, but you can also eat, you know, street food and have fun. Now, let me give a little tip to, to all the listeners as well. When you go to a new city and you want to find out the best place to go and eat, ask the taxi driver, the cab driver. Now, cab drivers, I have yet to meet a cab driver that isn't a foodie. They all love their food, right? Wherever you go in the world, all cab drivers love their food. And they take people to and back from all the restaurants in the city. So they know the the hotspots because they're always going there. But then they listen into the conversation afterwards. And the the people in the back of the cab going, wow, that was so good. This was so good. You know, the the lobster at this place. Or they'll say, oh, you know what? That really wasn't worth it. So you ask cab driver forget your concierge because he's normally on a backhander forget any anything like that ask the cab drivers great tip never thought of that great tip thank you michelle so moving on to chapter five that is your hidden gem a place that you absolutely love that maybe the listeners wouldn't know too much about well i'm gonna head home for this one uh, and home for me is in the Ardèche. Now, don't all come flocking to the Ardèche looking for me, please. <laughs> the Ardèche is one of the biggest uh, region, well, departments in France. So I, I think I think we can we can all go to the Ardèche. Don't worry. It is still one of the um, the parts in France that stayed fairly rugged and rural um, because you can't really put houses down on there because it is so rugged. It is an extraordinary beautiful part of France. Uh, the Ardèche Gorge, where the river runs through, full of wildlife, full of great ingredients. The best chestnuts grown in France come from the Ardèche region. Great, uh, great fishing, great hunting, and uh, just just beautiful. The, the weather is extraordinary. In the summer months, it is incredibly hot. In the winter months, it gets very, very cold, really cold. But that's what we want. That's what we like. We like seasons, proper, Real seasons. proper seasons. And in the winter, you have to wrap up. And in my house, we, we you know, get the fire going. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's it's just an incredible, beautiful place. The wines are good as well. The Rhone River flows through it. Uh, the, the local wines are, are, are just, yeah. Perfect, with the perfect accompaniment for the food as well. Mm, sounds sounds glorious. Where would you fly into or travel into to mm. to get to the best part of the Ardèche? I, I always say that it's best to fly into Lyon, um, spend the night in Lyon, Lyon, get yourself a nice experience the amazing food in Lyon, indeed, uh, and then hire a car and then head south. And within uh, forty five minutes, you're already in the Ardèche the northernmost part of the Ardèche. It'll take about two hours to get to the southernmost part of the Ardèche because the Ardèche is a really long département. It's, it's quite long. It's actually very different. The northern part of the Ardèche is quite high up in the mountains and, and has a completely different landscape to the southern part of the Ardèche. It's almost um, almost like a different country, in fact. Really? So if you... Yeah, 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 really. The scenery is different. 
And, and to a certain extent, actually, the food is quite different because the northern part of the Ardèche, as I said, is, is quite high up in the mountains. And um, uh, so you, even in the summer months, it's quite, quite cool. Um, and the food there is, is quite rich, whereas the southernmost part of the Ardèche is very much uh, Mediterranean influence. So it's, it's quite, quite different. So I, I would say take, go to the Ardèche and spend you know, a week or two traveling up and well, down towards the south and then finish up in somewhere like uh, Pont Saint-Esprit, um, which is uh, the southernmost tip of the Ardèche. Uh, and it's where the Ardèche River joins the Rhone River. Uh, and Pont Saint-Esprit is a lovely place to, to stay a couple of days as well. Make sure you go on market day on a Saturday uh, and just, yeah, fill your luggage and boots with all the ingredients you can on market day. Lovely. Well, in complete contrast to that, chapter six is your worst travel experience. Worst travel experience. I've um, thankfully not had too many. I can remember one particular scary one, though. Well, maybe not scary, but but quite shocking. And the place will remain a secret, and I won't I won't name the hotel. Um, <laughs> uh, we 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 did a big trip with uh, my wife and daughter through, of India, and um, I think well, then we took three weeks. To, to visit, uh, which is not not in itself enough time to visit the whole of India. So we did did kind of the West Coast, did um, Bombay, uh, and then we did uh, Rajasthan, and then we ended up in Goa. Um, but I think it was the, the last or the, the, the two days before packing up and, and heading home, we went down to the swimming pool of this beautiful resort, only to find or to see two gigantic rats having a little swimming in the pool Um, and it kind of kind of put us off going in (laughs) not not ideal for mm, no no we we kind of undenied if we should kind of check out or what we should do and uh we we said, okay, look, we've only got one more day here, so let's let's just not go to the pool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you must have, I imagine, um, in your travels also experienced some pretty weird and maybe not so wonderful cuisine. Any oh. any horrendous dishes that come to mind? Yes. Well, that, that's fairly simple. I mean, I don't like okra. Oh, right. In fact, I can't stand okra. I've had lots of people cook it for me and say, look, I'll make it make it really nice. You'll love it. I promise you. No, it doesn't work for me. I've yet to taste okra that I can say, hmm, that was nice. No, never. <laughs> well, finally, then we are on to the last chapter of your travel diaries, which is chapter seven, the destination that remains at the top of your travel bucket list. Oh. <sighs> Oh, South America. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've yet to visit uh, South America. I'd love to go to, you know, Mexico, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, you know, all of those, Argentina, every single, uh, there's so much, so much to see and taste as well. That's that's the thing. That's the one place that, that myself and my wife would, would love to go and that, that it's on our destination. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Michelle Root. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Thank you. A big thank you to Michelle Roux. You can watch Michelle Roux's French Country Cooking as a box set now exclusively on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you really enjoyed it, then if you fancy leaving a rating or a review, that would be extra special. If you want to find out who's joining me on next week's episode, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Would love to hear from you as always. And if you can't wait till then, remember there's all of the first five seasons to catch up on. Nearly 70 episodes to keep you busy there and don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests i always include in the episode show notes and they're also always on my website thetraveldiariespodcast.com thanks so much for listening and i'll be back next week Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.